Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Transforming Trauma. I'm Eve. In my day job as a clinical social worker, it's all about problem solving and supporting people through major life transitions. I am driven by my belief in the healing power of our relationships with each other and with caring professionals. On this show, you'll hear from many colleagues and courageous trauma survivors who have chosen to share their stories of recovery. They believe, just as I do, that it's time for a new narrative about sexual violence that does not require survivors to perform victimhood. Our hope is that sharing their stories will be helpful to you, the listener. We've often changed their names and taken steps to make sure they feel protected. I'm humbled by the opportunity to host them and hope you'll hear yourself in these conversations and realize you're not as alone in the struggle. Maybe it'll inspire you to connect with someone you love about your own recovery. Transforming Trauma is presented in partnership with Rachel Grant Coaching, and more resources can be found at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to Transforming Trauma, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, share stories. Transforming Trauma is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Eve, and I'm very excited to have Maura and Kaylee here with me today. Uh, Maura Crossan and Kaylee Rector will be sharing about how they've integrated trauma-informed practices into their roles as victims' rights attorneys. So first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our guests. Get ready for it. (laughs) Um, Maura has been working with survivors of violence for nearly two decades, She began her career working with domestic violence survivors as an intern with the Center for Family Justice while earning her BA in sociology from the University of Connecticut. After graduating, she spent several years as a family violence victim advocate for the YWCA Domestic Abuse Services Program 
before matriculating at Quinnipiac University School of Law. As a law student, she interned with the state's attorney office, the Connecticut, the Civil Legal Clinic and New Haven Legal Aid Association. Wow. After being admitted to the Connecticut State Bar in 2013, Mora began her legal career representing minor victims of sexual assault as a guardian aid litem before accepting a position as an associate attorney with the Victims' Rights Center of Connecticut in 2015, prior to the program's acquisition by the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence in 2018. Mora now enjoys her role as both program director and senior attorney at the VRCCP where she oversees a team of four attorneys, a paralegal and legal interns. In her spare time, Maura enjoys spending time with her family and exploring new restaurants with her husband with whom she just celebrated her one year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Kaylee has been practicing law for six and a half years and has spent her career advocating for vulnerable populations, including abuse and neglected children, domestic violence survivors, immigrants, and victims of serious crimes. Kaylee is the assistant program director and associate attorney of the VRCCT, where her practice focuses primarily on human humanitarian forms of immigration relief for non-citizens fleeing sexual violence and other crimes within the US, as well as persecution and torture in their home countries. Utilizing tenants of trauma-informed care, Kaylee takes a client-centered approach to direct representation seeking to empower survivors in their pursuit of justice and recovery. In her current role, she's also a member of the executive committee of the Connecticut chapter of American Immigration Lawyers Association and the Connecticut Bar Association Committee on Human Trafficking, serves on the advisory board for Quinnipiac's University Legal Studies Program and is a regular guest lecturer at Quinnipiac University School of Law. Kaylee is admitted to practice law in New York and Connecticut and outside of work, Kaylee enjoys distance running and will be running her third Boston Marathon on October 11th. That is soon. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so let's just dive right in. Um, Maura, tell us about what you do at the center. Who's, who's eligible? Does the perpetrator need to be involved at all? Sure. Uh, so we provide holistic trauma-informed legal representation to victims of crime uh, with a priority for victims of sexual assault. Under our funding, 90% of our cases actually have to be sexual assault. And that was important to us to, um, to make that a priority um, based on our partnerships and, and referrals and caseloads um, leading up to that point. Um, so, the, um, so I guess who is eligible is you must unfortunately be a victim of crime. Um, and uh, again, but with a focus of victims of sexual assault, uh, we do reserve 10% for um, domestic violence, child abuse, elder abuse, homicide, and violence against those who identify as LGBTQIA+. Um, so we do have a portion of those types of cases as well. Um, and our holistic legal representation includes representation in criminal cases, um, both pre and post arrest uh, advocacy. Um, some family law, uh, with an emphasis on emergency, uh, type protection cases, restraining orders, custody, uh, and also civil protective orders, which are specific for victims of sexual assault um, and abuse and stalking. Uh, also housing, education, employment, daily focuses on immigration. Um, so again, you know, we try and, and take a, a trauma-informed and holistic lens 
um, when we um, meet a client to really assess all of the legal needs and then address as many as we can. Uh, and all of our services are free of charge and we have no income guidelines. So we don't have to be um, above, you know, below the poverty line, which is what some legal aid organizations have to um, have to make it eligible. Um, we don't have those income guidelines, luckily. So anyone who is a victim of crime can be eligible for our services. That's incredible. Just as a, a quick follow-up question, how do people find out about your services? So we have no shortage of referrals, unfortunately. Um, so we have uh, the Alliance, the Connecticut Alliance and Sexual Violence, which is what we are the legal program for, has nine member centers throughout the state. So many of our referrals come through our own member centers. Uh, they're also called rape crisis centers. Um, so that's the majority of our referrals, but we've done a really excellent job over the years formalizing a lot of partnerships with different social service agencies. So a lot of our referrals will also come through other partner organizations, universities, um, you know, with whom we've developed a, a longstanding relationship and collaboration. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really amazing. Um, I'm sorry to hear that there's no shortage of referrals, but not, not surprised. Um, so what, what got you interested, both of you, in this work in the first place? So, <clears throat> excuse me, I knew when I was in law school that I was probably going to be interested in maybe a, not, a more non-traditional setting and somewhere where my legal work could intersect with maybe more of like a social work type lens. Um, my first job out of law school was working for the Administration for Children's Services in New York City, and I really enjoyed the um, protective aspect of that work and working with really vulnerable populations, specifically children who were abused and neglected. I didn't love uh, representing an agency and found that my passion and my fire really gets lit by being able to work directly with someone um, and represent a person and their interests and have that, you know, that connection and that relationship. So I shifted my practice to doing direct representation of domestic violence survivors. Um, and just through the years, as I got interested in different areas of law, eventually switched to doing immigration and specifically humanitarian immigration. So I think that um, where I've landed with VRCCT has definitely always been in my blood um, since deciding to become an attorney. And um, this team in particular has just been a really, really wonderful fit for where my practice has ended up as I've become more educated about trauma and how to be trauma informed as a lawyer and finding a group of attorneys um, who are like-minded and, you know, Mora who's cultivated this just really unique and really fantastic culture within our program of being trauma informed both with our clients, but with our staff as well was just such a gift. Um, so I, I think that ultimately the universe got me exactly where I needed mm. to be in terms of my values, what I wanted to do with this work, and also what I need for me to be able to do this work long-term. Yeah, I think similarly, um, the universe has also led me down this path. Um, and so when I graduated from UConn, I was gonna take some time off and then go get my MSW. Uh, and then I was offered a position as a family violence victim advocate in court. Um, and once I got into court and doing the victim advocacy work, which I was comfortable with, you know, really being in the courtroom as an advocate um, just really sparked something within me. Um, and I had a client who was almost murdered by her husband and going through that experience with her as her advocate, um, but also she was in, uh, they had been in the process of getting a divorce uh, at that time. And so I was also attending those court dates with her. 
And I just noticed, it was very obvious to me that the system really wasn't working for the victim and um, was really working much more for the offender. And I didn't understand why. So I thought, well, if I don't understand why, I either need to educate myself or I need to get in there and I need to fix it. Um, so I decided to go to law school. Um, so I've always had, you know, victim rights in my background, victim advocacy in my background, and then I just needed to add the legal component. Um, so combining all of that um, led me to the Victim Rights Center um, shortly after graduating law school. Hmm. Wow. Thank you both for, for sharing your journeys. It's inspiring to know, you know, that there are lawyers out there who choose this path because, you know, you have so many, so many different options and um, you're definitely not the like stereotypical lawyer. So I, I appreciate learning about your, your paths that are filled with passion and purpose. Um, Thank you. What, what does trauma-informed representation look like in working with survivors of sexual assault? Yeah, so I mean, I think that as a starting point, it's just figuring out how to take some of the well-established practices of trauma-informed care that we see in other disciplines and figuring out how that applies and what that looks like within the unique dynamic of an attorney-client relationship. So as a starting point, as with any trauma-informed practice, no matter what type of work you're doing, um, our approach to being trauma-informed lawyers is centered around putting the client first and putting the client in control. And the metaphor that I always come back to and I honestly use with my clients when I'm explaining to them how I view our relationship and our partnership is, you know, you're in the driver's seat. It's like we're in a car, your driver's seat, I'm shotgun. I'm over here with the GPS. I'll let you know what routes we're, we're taking, what the options are, what the traffic situation is, which is going to be the scenic route, which one might not be so great, where we're going to end up. But at the end of the day, you're the one who's in control of the steering wheel, the brakes, the gas. You're going to decide where we're going to go, where it is that you want to go. We can, you know, take a pause, take a pit stop, take a break. You can, you know, pull over, kick me out of the car anytime you want. All of that is in your control. And I'm just here to give you the information that you need to ultimately get wherever it is that your destination is. So in terms of, you know, how we break that down, I think that there are about six sort of areas or principles that we try to focus on when we're interacting with clients. Um, and really at every step of the way, try to assess in each of these, you know, how, how can I better put my client in that driver's seat? How can I find every opportunity possible to give that control back to my client? Um, so I think transparency is a big one, reliability, uh, proactive support and working with other support systems, because at the end of the day, we're here to be a lawyer and we know that trauma survivors have a lot of really complex needs and they're going to be best able to interact with the legal system and engage in their case when those needs are being met. And a lot of the times those are needs that we, we can't meet. They're beyond our expertise. So we really value working um, multidisciplinarily with other folks. Um, so victim advocates, therapists, family members, you know, whoever is going to be a support in our client's life who can help meet those needs outside of the legal case. Um, and then patience is obviously a huge one, both with ourselves, with our client, with the process, with our relationship, um, safety, and then empowerment. Um, so those are things that we're always thinking about and kind of always have on our brains as we're interacting with clients. And I think that it's particularly important when we are working in a legal context, because any legal system is very likely going to be 
uh, alienating, scary, intimidating, maybe re-victimizing, re-traumatizing for a trauma survivor. So in addition to working together with our client to work through their trauma so that they can engage with the case. We're also simultaneously working within systems that are often very inherently traumatizing. So there's a lot of components at play. And so it's very important that we're constantly mindful of our interactions and how we can can do better um, every time because it really is not a destination. It is a constant, constant, you're constantly learning and doing better with this. I am every single week learning from my colleagues, learning from my clients. Uh, we talk regularly amongst ourselves about missteps, you know, sharing how we could have handled an interaction better and so we can learn from each other. And so I guess that that goes to another piece of this, which is how we make sure that our staff are trained in trauma-informed lawyering and what that looks like. And truthfully, a lot of this is credited to Mora she has come up with a really, really great onboarding process. So everybody in our program, from Mora down to our legal interns, when they join the organization, we have a whole set of training materials and videos on trauma and trauma-informed practices. And we start from actually like having our staff understanding the neurobiology of trauma, even though we're lawyers and probably can't do a really eloquent job of explaining that. But I do think that that's a really important component of it, because understanding what is physiologically happening inside a trauma survivor's brain and body, I think is a a really important first step to take to understanding how that's going to impact all of their interactions from that point out and understanding that it's something that is not it's so beyond their control. You know, it's like any other body function that's happening we it's just happening automatically it's not something that they have any power over um so we have that as part of our onboarding process with all new staff but like i said we are constantly working with one another and workshopping cases and sharing experiences um, and also seeking out new resources and, and new ways to educate ourselves to again just keep doing better and keep being better for our clients Wow, that's incredible. I love that it's like a systematic approach. I know that there are so many, yeah, so I'm so many organizations, I'm sure, who would benefit from that training. I'm immediately like, is that something that people can buy and like support your your work? Um, I don't know, like what supported you more in like developing that? Truthfully, YouTube. Um, so when I when I joined the Victim Rights Center, um, my uh, supervisor at the time directed me to Dr. Rebecca Campbell and Dr. Jim Hoffer. And so we started with those videos. And interestingly, for me in my journey, I came from you know working with domestic violence survivors and really thought I understood trauma. Um, and then I started watching, uh, particularly the Dr. Rebecca Campbell video, um, and I just might brain almost exploded because I never understood what Bailey was talking about the neurobiology piece. I never had been trained in that at all. And I also thought that if you understand trauma of a victim, you understand all trauma. And what I very quickly learned, this is like day one of my job, mm-hmm. is that um, trauma that um, sexual violence survivors face looks very different than other crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very nuanced. And so I really had to dig into that you know, get as educated as I could um, for my clients uh, and to stay in this job. So I knew I needed to put something together that was pretty robust so that anyone coming on, 
uh, to my team also understood as early as possible that no matter what your background was, if it wasn't specifically working with sexual violence, this job is going to be very different than anything you've done before and you need to understand everything about it. And so we just put together a pretty robust playlist really on YouTube because that we didn't have resources really for anything else at the time. Um, and we still use it because it's incredibly effective and all of my team um, has given us great feedback from their onboarding process um, and we have our interns watch as well. Um, so, you know, we've, we've just continually added to it. And it's, but we can certainly share it if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, my like wheels are spinning. I'm on a committee to support some medical providers in, in Boston and trainees to like learn about trauma-informed care and there's so little little time for that and it's not really included in medical training and I never thought about the usefulness of YouTube like it sounds so basic I've never thought about putting modules up on there yeah look you know when you're a, a small nonprofit with limited funding you gotta be a little scrappy and resourceful and we certainly are in that way um, yeah. Kaylee has also put together a very comprehensive trauma-informed um, legal representation training that she does. Um, she's done it at Quinnipiac. We've done it for um, National Crime Victims Rights Week. Um, we've been asked to do it many times. We can both present or Kaylee often present solo. Um, it's an incredible slide that she put together. So um, if there's ever an opportunity where you'd like her or both of us to come, um, we would welcome the opportunity to educate anyone on this su subject. We find it so important, not just for lawyers, but anyone providing services to victims to be trained in this practice. Wow, thanks. And I would be remiss to not mention as part of this um, that in addition to being trauma-informed when we're talking about clients, like I said, more really puts a, a huge emphasis on being trauma-informed with ourselves and with our staff. Um, and I think that that's such an important part of the conversation that can oftentimes get glossed over or not talked about at all. Um, so we are very, very candid with each other about the risks of vicarious trauma, you know, the signs and the symptoms of that, and really prioritizing self-care and boundaries. And like I said, it, you know, Moore's done a great job with cultivating a one of the healthiest environments I've ever had the pleasure of working in, which with the legal profession is saying something, <laughs> um, you know, but we really do uh, try to prioritize and, and model for our staff, taking truly taking time off and actually being off and having those boundaries. So, you know, at five o'clock or whatever hour that you're done working, you're seven hours for the day, you are truly off, you're not answering emails, you're not responding to things, you're not pressured to do that either implicitly or explicitly. And like I said, we have regular case conferences, which we certainly talk strategy about cases and, you know, kind of the substantive legal aspects, but we also make space for venting and sharing frustrations and heartbreak and all of the myriad emotions that come up with working with these cases. And that's a really important piece of it too, because it's, you know, like the airplane face mask on an airplane, concept. If we're not putting those masks on ourselves first, we're not going to be able to be there to provide that trauma-informed representation to the, to the survivors that need our help. I'm so glad you shared that piece. That, that is super inspiring and so rare. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, for so many years, have just like desired to see mentors who actually take care of themselves. And it, it has felt like I've had to surrender to the fact that they're, you can't expect that from organizations like you have to just figure it out yourself but we're capable of so much more when our work environments are supportive and like see us as human beings and 
see the risks of the work. It's so it's so rare. So I'm yeah. really appreciating that. Um, are there any additional other challenges that you're experiencing in this work or, or generally, especially with the pandemic? I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we routinely operate within systems that are rooted in oppression. So, I mean, that just is an overall overarching challenge, I think, daily. Um, you know, when we're working with the most, I'd say some of the most vulnerable populations. And so you have people that have been victimized and then re-victimized over and over again. I've had many clients say to me that the process of going through whatever system, criminal justice, civil legal, whatever system they went through after being victimized, that process was worse mm -hmm. to them, more injurious and traumatizing to them than the actual crime itself. And that is horrific. And I've not just been told that once, this is not a one-off thing. I think anyone on my team could tell you that that's been said to them by multiple clients. And that's, that's a problem and, and a real challenge. I think that's probably the one that, um, you know, so that's sort of systems-based, um, but of course, you know, the pandemic has brought a lot of challenges um, to clients who just lack resources um, and abilities. Uh, and what we're also seeing on the other side of the pandemic is what we predicted, but we could not have possibly predicted this level um, in the increase in referrals that it's brought to our door. Um, we received more, we received triple the amount of referrals in June and July than we've ever received before in our existence. And we became so overwhelmed with new case referrals that for the months of uh, August and September, we actually closed intake for the first time since we have been um, in existence in 2013. So that is an incredible statistic that that's what we're seeing. And, and we really believe that it's because of the pandemic and what the other side of the pandemic is. Um, and we know a lot of our colleagues who are in different service organizations and crisis centers are so overwhelmed right now with clients um, that it's, it's, it's gonna lead probably to some burnout, of course, if you're in an organization that's not necessarily supportive. Um, you know, we can only handle so much as humans. So I think with the pandemic, you know, that's our, that's our current challenge that we're facing is how to manage the massive increase in referrals. We have five lawyers total um, and one case manager um, who's took their time as case manager and paralegal. And then, you know, we have our legal interns, thank God, uh, every semester that, you know, change, but um, that's all we have um, on our team. So it's a lot for us to handle. We want to help everyone. We hate saying no. Um, to cases, it's just not in our nature. But um, you know, that's that's a line we've had to draw for the first time, and that is scary for you know, in our field of direct service, we want to help everyone, um, but it's, it's it's a real challenge. Absolutely. So I I actually had an experience like going through a legal process, and I was fortunate to have support from like an empathic. Um, lawyer on, on your team who introduced me to the two of you and I couldn't remember what what parts of my experience were like triggering to me or bothered me or surprising and she so kindly shared a little short list that, that I don't know if she had taken note of which I, I so appreciated even months after we'd worked together um, and I, I wondered if you had any comments or like anecdotes that uh, like others have shared this or if there's anything any advocacy that can be done um, I'm just going to read some of the things I mentioned, like the one size fits all design was difficult for me, that 
other separate ongoing trauma, which doesn't necessarily fit into the boxes for like victims compensation fund. That was the process I was going through applying for mm -hmm. difficulty filling out the therapist form, like um, the use of the gender binary and um, the form requires a, a provider to detail that emotional trauma is, is physical. I think I was troubled by that. Like, I don't know. It just felt so invalidating that Mm. You need to like make a case for that and if there's like any doubt about that it just doesn't feel trauma-informed um what you have to detail what percentage of your therapy treatment is related to the crime which like what does that even mean like how do you come up with a percentage um yeah they're requiring me to list the date or the year of a crime that like does not correspond with someone who's experiencing any kind of ongoing trauma so yeah, are there any pieces of that that you might be able to, to speak to at all? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know, sometimes you're right, it's so incredibly specific and that's not what everyone experiences. And so it's not trauma-informed is that in that it's not, it's not looking at an individual's experience and then tailoring the service to them, which is what you know, we try and do. Um, it, it is this one size fits all. And so I can imagine it feels uh, incredibly invalidating. And, you know, I think some of our clients have the hardest time with basic things. And, and so one of the things we try and provide is just to ease a little bit of the burden of even making a phone call to law enforcement mm -hmm. or, you know, filling out forms or making appointments. And, and so, you know, this seems to require a lot, the, the onus seems to be a lot on the victim mm -hmm. um, with this procedure. So I, I completely agree. Uh, and I hadn't, and I appreciate you sharing this too, because I've, as you know, been working in this field for a long time. Uh, I've, I've looked at that application a hundred times. You know, I've helped clients with it. I've looked at it a hundred times. I just never, it never dawned on me yeah. that how it might feel to someone. So I'm really grateful that you shared this experience. Um, and I may um, discuss with you another time, you know, bringing it to the attention of the people in charge of you know, making these forms, um, because I just, it, I was not aware. Um, so thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you. Haley, would you want to add anything to that? I, I mean, I, I agree with what Maura said, which is, you know, we get so used to a lot of these forms that you know, maybe the first time we looked at it, we realized where it was lacking, but we are just so kind of numbed to working within systems and requirements and procedures that never feel very good, um, that it can sometimes just become normalized, which isn't, which isn't great. And so it is really, really helpful to have feedback, um, you know, even if it isn't something that we can necessarily do something about. So I, you know, I'm particularly thinking about some of the immigration forms that I have to go through with my clients, which are equally restrictive. Um, and particularly when it comes to addressing um, issues of trauma. Um, and with that, I, I, I don't know that there is ever gonna be much that I can do about that, but at the very least, that is somewhere where I can um, validate um, a client's experience when we're going through that form and acknowledge where there might be points of discomfort mm -hmm. or feeling, um, you know, forced into an answer that they're not really comfortable with. Um, you know, I'm thinking particularly of 
some of the immigration forms and the number of dates that they require. Um, but that's, a, you know, that is another area where, although we may not be able to change some of those processes and forms and, and things like that, there may be things that we can try to do to make that a little bit better. So for instance, on immigration forms, when it comes to dates, um, it, the form wants you to put it in a month, day, year format. And very often, you know, my clients are not able to remember even a month, maybe they're able to remember a year. Um, and so instead of restricting them and forcing them to come up with some arbitrary date, which very likely is not even accurate, you know, I will always give them the option, you know, if you know the date, great. And if not, we can kind of write outside the margin here and write it the way that you want and write it the way that you remember. Um, so I think that there are small moments for um, us as advocates to try to make that a little bit more of a comfortable experience when working within really restrictive systems and procedures, even if at the end of the day, we may not be able to actually change them. Um, but that said, again, I, I am very grateful to hear your feedback and also completely understand all of the points that you made with respect to the compensation form. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Maura, earlier you said how different sexual violence crimes are. Like, can you speak to more like what you mean by how different they are compared to other crimes? I think uh, specifically... Um, you know, the, the neurobiology of trauma piece was something that I really didn't understand. Um, and I think we also deal with um, non-intimate partner sexual assault the most, that's 80% of our cases. Um, so that I, I was so used to trauma within a relationship. And it's just, it looks very different when you have trauma without that relationship component. Um, you know, I'm not saying better or worse. I'm not, you know, everyone's experience is different, but it, it is just a different form of trauma, I think, when you remove it from that. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, that was the most kind of jarring learning experience was just understanding there is different kinds of trauma, not just sexual versus, you know, domestic violence, but mm. you know, just different kinds of trauma. Um, right. I can also say, you know, taking some homicide cases and dealing with grieving mothers that is a completely different world of trauma that I had not experienced um, before. So, you know, it's all part of our, all part of this journey and the learning experience we've had in this field and trying to provide holistic representation means you need to understand the different forms and that it can look very different for, we could have the exact same set of facts and the person could have experienced the trauma completely differently. Um, so, you know, rooted in those principles that you know, Haley talked about um, neurobiology piece. And so again, just about being educated on all the different forms and then knowing it could look totally different depending on the person and not trying to put anyone into a box that you're supposed to feel like this. You're supposed to say this. You're supposed to respond like this. Your face is supposed to look like this. Why I had a, a defense attorney say um, yesterday about a forensic interview about sexual abuse victim that the fact she didn't cry in the forensic interview to him showed that she wasn't being credible. So clearly he's not educated in the fact that not everyone who's experienced a crime or not every child who's a victim of sexual violence cries when they talk about it. In fact, you might say it's probably more likely they don't cry because they've turned that part off in their brain in order to be able to talk about the trauma. Um, so that literally just happened from yesterday. So it's, it's 
front of my brain, but so just understanding the different types of trauma, but understanding also that trauma is very different depending on the individual person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of the, the Ali Reisman and the U.S. gymnast trial. I was watching with such attention just to how lacking in, like, I, I just wonder if, if the USA Olympic winners, like, can't access trauma-informed representation, like, who, who can? Like, I would just... Mm-hmm wish for them and everyone that they would have the ability to be supported through navigating such a horrendous trauma already. Um, Absolutely. Did either of you get to watch some of the trial proceedings? Absolutely. It was incredibly powerful. Those, that, that group of survivors is unbelievable. They're so inspiring. And when they just had to testify again and go over yeah. it all over again, and uh, it just, my heart, Breaks, but I'm, I'm so proud and I think that's yeah. my favorite part of this job is as hard as it is um, the resiliency in our clients is incredible and that's what keeps us going that's what keeps us doing the work and staying in this field um, and that's I think what that that team represents so much of. That really that really resonates um, so in terms of wrap, wrapping up I'd love to hear like what what's bringing you joy these days in addition to your resilient clients. Yeah inspirational advocates? Oh boy. All right. And it, it can't be about our resilient clients because that's <laughs> <my answer. laughs> um, Well, I don't know if this is cheating because this is not necessarily specifically about them being resilient, just, but still client related. Um, I just shared this. We had case conference this afternoon and um, I have a few clients who um started off as asylum seekers and we went through that process together and we were able to get them asylum. And that is one of the most exhausting, traumatizing legal processes I've ever been a part of. Um, And so as a result, I think that the bond that I have with them is particularly strong and um, they are all kind of coming up at, at, on the point in their legal process with their immigration status, where they will hopefully be getting their green card, their permanent residence within probably the next six months to a year. And we're starting to talk about, you know, planning down the road for when they're eligible to naturalize, to become citizens. A couple of them um, have started to petition to bring family members over from home country, including children that they haven't seen for, you know, four or five years. And just to be able to be part of that and to watch them kind of go through each of these steps and just see how, how wonderfully they're doing and healing. Um, it's just been, it's just been such an incredible experience um, that I get to, to be part of that in some small way. And um, so I guess, I guess I am cheating. I guess this is kind of about <laughs> but it is, it is hard to, to not mention that when you ask, you know, what brings us joy, because like Maura said, I, I think that that is so much of, of what brings any of us to this work and, um, and keeps bringing us back. Right. Because it's, it's tough work. It's hard. It's exhausting. Um, it can be trauma, traumatizing and triggering um, all on its own, but on top of any ad- uh, existing traumas that we we bring to our work, and if it weren't for those moments of just seeing that resilience and getting to experience that vicarious resilience, it would it would be difficult work to stay with. But those are the those are the moments that really make it all worthwhile. So, 
Um, yeah, I totally cheated on that answer, but I'm sticking by it because it's it's where my heart is. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go personal, I think, on this and not do professional since I shared Good. a lot. Of- <laughs> <laughs> September was a joyful month for me. Uh, it started with my birthday on the 1st um, and then my first wedding anniversary on the 5th. And my husband took me to Newport as a surprise and uh, then threw me a surprise party when we got home. Um, so yeah. And my cousin had a baby this month and my other cousin got engaged. So we've had a lot of like nice family together time. My family's very close and that I spend a lot of time on the weekends with them. And I think that really fuels me, um, to, you know, keep going during the week just to get to the weekend when I have some nice um, family time always planned. Um, and so September has been full of, full of joy. Uh, and I think the weather changing too, Kaylee and I are both runners, so we are not really on the same level, I would say. Um, but, you know, the summer was really hard to be a runner through. We had some really rough weather. And this weather for me is like perfect running weather, like in the 60s, little 70s, my favorite running weather. So I've had some really good runs this week, and so that is also funny. I will second that. Lower dew points and less humidity. Lots of joy in that. <laughs> I was, I was just asking someone if there's research on the benefits of exercising indoors versus outdoors. And obviously the answer is that it benefits you to do it outdoors, but I, I don't know, I guess not all of us are cut out for New England weather. I didn't really want to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think being for me, being in nature, sunshine, fresh oxygen and air is really what I need to you know, recover from all the time spent indoors, sitting at this computer on Zooms in meetings or in court or in our office or in the car. Um, so for me, outdoor exercise is, is definitely my thing. Absolutely. Well, I want to throw in one last question. I, I just realized that if, if I'm completely transparent, my sense of like sexual violence and law is that survivors rarely get justice. And I know that justice looks different for everyone. So I I guess I'm just sitting here thinking like, do you experience a lot of like victories or like what, how hard, like, is it true that like the system is so biased against survivors? Like that so many people don't, like you said, they don't wanna deal with how traumatizing the system can be. Is it rare that you see someone like get, get something that they are seeking? It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we were both trying to search around if there was yeah. a nicer, less depressing way to answer that. But yeah. You do the work knowing, you do that knowing it because you believe that it's worth pursuing anyways, that, that you believe in the survivors. I, I think, yes, we go into it knowing um, the, the rarity of it, but for the times that you get it, it makes it all worth it. I think we also know and believe in the power of, of our work. And we've been told by clients when they give us feedback that even if they didn't get the justice that they wanted, being believed, being validated, being supported, being advocated for throughout the process made it worth it for them. Um, so we know that our representation matters. Yes. And that's why we do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a healing experience in itself. Exactly. So even if yeah. we can just change the experience, so we can't change the outcome probably, but we can, we know we can change the experience. And so if we can save one person from being re-traumatized through any of the systems, 
um, than it's worth it. I agree entirely. And I think just like justice looks different for each of our clients, I think that for us, how we see victories has to be flexible as well. And we have to celebrate the small ones. And, you know, I think just even being able to explain to a survivor who is considering engaging with the criminal justice system, being able to explain to them what they can expect and be able to prepare them for that so that they can then make the best decisions for themselves, Mm -hmm. whether that means deciding not to report and seeking healing and justice and recovery in other ways or deciding to, to go for it, you know, but then at least they know they're prepared. They have that knowledge in advance so they can better take care of themselves in that process. And then even if it does turn out that there isn't a victory in the sense of an arrest or a conviction or whatever, maybe somebody might think of as a traditional victory Mm -hmm. for a survivor in the criminal justice system, there is at least the victory in, like Maura said, the fact that that experience was maybe a little safer for them and a little less damaging. And they were able to come out of it feeling a little bit more empowered. Um, So I think traditional victories, yeah, maybe not so much, but I think that there are are moments and opportunities to still celebrate moments of, of strength and bravery in our clients. Yeah, I think empowerment is key. That's exactly what I was going to follow up with. I and mean, of course, you use the word because same brain, but same brain. <laughs> um, yes. Um, but yeah, I think empowerment is key. If we can be successful in, in helping the client take the power back, that is a victory. Yeah. And so if, if that's all we can do, that's a victory. Um, and that's what we spend a lot of our time trying to do. I recently had a client who came to me and said, I don't know if I want to report my sexual assault. It was, you know, it was a, a partner, intimate partner sexual assault. I don't know if I can emotionally handle reporting. I don't know if I can emotionally get myself to report. I said, okay, well, let's work on that then. Let's, you know, go keep meeting and talking about it and see where we end up. Um, she ended up reporting. She ended up reporting well, surviving that process. Um, the detective submitted a warrant. The warrant wasn't signed, so no arrest will be made. And so, of course, she's disappointed. Um, but I said to her in our final meeting, I said, do you remember when you came to me? Do you remember what she said? And she said, yeah. I said, you said you didn't think that you could report this. And look what you just did. Exactly. So even if that was, she just proved to herself that she could stand up to him, that she could make this report, um, and then she could survive it on the other end, no matter what the outcome was, even if it was disappointing, that to her meant everything. Um, even if it wasn't all of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you two are, are just amazing. I, I wish I could talk to you for hours. I'm just so grateful that you made time for our conversation today. Thank um, you. I'd love to have you back another time or I'm actually from, from the area. So maybe we'll, we'll cross paths in some other capacity. I love the Family Justice Center. It was great to know Maura that you, you interned there or that's yeah. a crossover. Um, so yeah, I want to thank you both for, for being our guests today, Maura and Kaylee. And remember that you can contact them, Maura at nsexualviolenceconnecticut.org and Kaylee, K-E-I-G-H-L-Y at nsexualviolenceconnecticut.org. That's CT.org. And you can learn more about their work at nsexualviolencect.org slash B-R-C-C-T. And Maura and Kaylee are available to train other attorneys on the best practices 
for trauma-informed legal representation. Be careful what you invite. <laughs> um, that, that's really exciting. Um, are there other organizations like yours in most states? It's very rare. Okay. So yes. we got to get more of these organizations out there. So Absolutely. that makes sense. You want to present to a lot of like law students or people who, okay. Hmm. I'm going to think on this. We got to make this happen. <laughs> um, so thank you for tuning in and joining us today. Don't forget to visit www.rachelgrantcoaching.com to learn more about sexual abuse recovery coaching and explore all the resources available on the site. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast. We have so much more to share. Thanks for listening. Thank you for having us. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.